Greetings, dear listener. I'm Ian McKenzie, one of the co-hosts of this live series, The Pandemic is a Prism, which aims to bring a mythopoetic lens to bridge divided worldviews. This series of 12 conversations ran from Maybon in September to the solstice in late December 2021. Each week, listeners were able to join my co-host Zamir Danji and I live alongside our guests for an emergent session that explored the pandemic from a multitude of angles. After each session, Zamir and I recorded a recap to harvest the key insights. We are now happy to release the entire series as a podcast, available to all as a gift. If you would like to access the original videos of the conversations, as well as order the forthcoming book, head over to agatheringofstories.com slash pandemic to learn more. And now, enjoy this session of The Pandemic is a Prism. Start with a little story for you today. So once upon a time, there was a king who ruled a vast kingdom, and he was loved for his wisdom, but also feared for his might. And at the center of this kingdom was a well, a well that was filled with pure and crystalline waters from which all the inhabitants of this kingdom drank. And it happened that three witches came and they poured seven drops of poison into this well. And they said that thenceforth, anyone who drunk from this well would go mad. And all the inhabitants of the kingdom, they drank from the well, and as it had been cast as a spell, all of them went mad. And the king, however, did not drink from it. And slowly over time, the inhabitants began to consider their king as someone who was completely untrustworthy, someone who had lost all sense of reason, and they began to think that our king has gone mad and he must be dethroned. The king now recognizing how the pieces were lining up against him, had to make a choice. And so he fashioned a golden goblet and he filled it deep with the water from the well and he drank from it. And then shortly after, all the members of the town began to say that the king had regained his sanity and that he was, of course, a fit and wonderful king to rule his subjects. And so he ruled thusly from that time on. That is the story. Mm. Thank you, Zamir. Um, I am Ian McKenzie here once again 
with Zumir to co-steward us on this next session in our Pandemic as a Prism series. And I'd love to ask just a few words, Zumir, on uh, what was it about that particular story that you felt uh, called to bring in this moment? Well, that story, it's an old parable, and I think it's one that speaks to a, a very ancient dilemma that all of us have experienced over the course of our lives, which is when there is something that we feel um, is uh, not right for us, and yet everybody seems to agree that this is the way that we should go, we are considered to be an outcast. And if we don't somehow participate or join in with the, you know, the prevailing uh, idea or the prevailing paradigm or the, the movement in which the stream or the current of society is going, then, you know, there's a cost to us. And in the case of the king, there's a cost to his self-respect, a cost to his power, a cost to his position. And it seems that the, the pandemic in particular has brought up this um, this conflict uh, very present and maybe not even for us individually, but many levels of power may be the same situation for a doctor or the same situation for a politician or the same situation for a, a small business owner. I mean, I feel like this is a story that many people can relate with and uh, something that I get the sense that we'll explore with greater depth in our call today. Mm. Mm. Well, this is uh, perhaps, yeah, a really good uh, segue into our conversation now, which in some ways kicks off the final third of this uh, series, which, you know, we've completed eight sessions now. Now we're in the last four. And uh, I'm delighted to be joined um, very shortly by our guest. And I'll just uh, share a few words of introduction uh, to lay the lay the carpet. Uh, so Daniel Pinchbeck, um, grateful to have some personal uh, relationship with. We actually toured uh, Australia, strangely enough, back in 2015. And uh, there's lots of, you know, good stories and um, just yeah, antics that happened around that time. But in that before and after, you know, I felt like I've maintained a uh, an awareness and and an appreciation for Daniel's work. Um, he seems to straddle a, a sort of a journalistic rigor, which I appreciate to to really bring a sort of well researched, well uh, well thought um, sense of how to navigate these times, and it, and also to be open actually quite a bit to possibilities that largely have either been or are dismissed by the mainstream or cast aside. Um, and also I feel like a, a real conscience of desire to, to, to regenerate culture in, uh, in a multitude of ways. And it stands largely through his body of work, which is actually quite vast. Um, I'm going to read just a little bit more now for uh, the listeners who may be unfamiliar with his work to just get a sense of it. Uh, Daniel is the author of Breaking Open the Head, 2012, The Return of Quetzalcoatl, and when plants dream. Uh, in 2017, his book, How Soon Is Now, he explored the systemic changes needed to avert ecological collapse and extinction. Uh, I read an early copy of that book actually, and uh, the intro story is actually him trying to start a revolution at Burning Man. Actually, it doesn't go the way he planned, but uh, it's a great opening story. Uh, he's also featured in the 2010 documentary, uh, Time for Change. Um, as well as he co-founded Evolver.net, the web magazine Reality Sandwich. Uh, he's a director for the Center for Planetary Culture. Uh, and he helped build the Regenerative Society's wiki database of solutions to the technical and social political challenges humanity faces. Uh, so quite hefty. And, um, you know, there's a couple of key lines here, actually, that Daniel has been speaking to in, in his work, particularly his essays on Substack, which we're going to get into. 
And so I'm uh, delighted to welcome Daniel to, uh, to the show here. Thanks, Ian. Good to see you. You forgot to mention our traipsing across Europe also. We were at Tamara together a while back, right? Oh, of course. That's a whole other chapter. Wow. Okay. Um, well, this is, this is also a long time coming, I feel, because, you know, there's so many threads, you know, from psychedelic exploration to culture building that I've wanted to actually have conversations with you about in the past. And somehow this thread through the pandemic actually felt uh, somehow, you know, that that's the one that brought us here. And um and I am delighted to to speak with you about this. And I think it'd be nice to upfront um, ask about your essay, which really caught my eye, where you really wrestled, this is back in August, uh, you wrestled the the sort of, you know, I don't want to call it pros and cons necessarily, but whether or not to get the vaccine. Uh, and you did at that time. And I would love for you to just illuminate, you know, what that wrestling was for you. Like what was actually um, at stake for you as you tried to navigate, you know, the decision. Um, yeah, that's a great question. I mean, um, I was sort of coming back to New York City from Tulum. Almost everybody that I knew in, in you know, in the sort of, uh, you know, white sort of neo-spiritual community in Tulum were all anti-vax. And, um, you know, in my own research, like I'd written a sort of long essay, short book that I published uh, last year on kind of um, conspiranoia, where I, I looked at all the, you know, suggestive evidence that this was some kind of bioweapon or um, uh, a plot to, you know, instill some kind of technocratic control system, um, which I still find quite, you know, persuasive, actually. But um, I was coming back to New York and, uh, you know, moving from Tulum, which is relatively not that dense, we're always outside, to a place where you're constantly clustered with other people indoors, if you go to a club or a restaurant. Uh, my mother is in her late 80s and she's very paranoid about the disease and I wouldn't have really been able to, you know, then I worry of giving it to her if I got it. Uh, then I went to Italy um, with a group. I was invited to give a talk to a, to a small group of like tech, you know, CEOs and so on, entrepreneurs. And um, somebody in that group came with COVID, I guess, and uh, ended up like running through the group. I mean, some people who were vaccinated got mild versions, but a number of people who were unvaccinated you know, went to the edge of being hospitalized and were really, really miserable. And they were, you know, generation younger than me. And they were like fully physically fit and dancers. And um, then when I left uh, that event, I went to visit a friend, I think in Tur Turin. And I found out on the way that this had happened, that I might have COVID. And Turin is a city, like a lot of Italian cities, a lot of old people. And I was like, damn, am I going to like suddenly pass this thing on to all these people? And so, so all those things kind of you know, join forces where it's like, okay, the vaccines seem to be imperfect and leaky. Um, you know, I don't, I, you know, th this is a murky situation in general, but given a set of like murky and ambiguous choices, you know, I feel more comfortable both, both for my own safety and for the safety of people I care about, you know, like my mother, um, you know, in, in, in getting, but I, I took the Johnson vaccine, which doesn't use the experimental mRNA uh, technology, as far as I understand it, and it's a, a one shot. And you know, I was I felt fluish for a day or two. I didn't have any further effects, and feel that was the best solution for me. I don't I don't think I would have taken one of the MRA ones. I don't think I would have gotten it if I'd stayed in a smaller, um, you know, more you know warmer, more open place. Hmm. Well, you bring up something that with um, that the sort of like the mythic undercurrent of why people tend to stay away from the vaccines or why that like whole, I'm going to call it subculture, right? Of a sort of 
uh, I don't want to call it, I mean, it concludes things like neo-shamanism and, and, you know, health, new, um, what's the word, like natural health practitioners, right? All that stuff. That there is a substructure there, which is a sort of um, fear of, of, you know, we've touched on it too on this series as well, like this technocratic agenda, right? And you also, you use this um, distinction that I can't remember the author's name who, who, who offered it, but it's uh, this difference between soft strategy and hard conspiracy. Mm -hmm. uh, and I actually, I like that actually, because it helped me differentiate too, right? Between uh, the nuances there that, I, wait, and I'd just love for you to actually speak that of what you understand those two to mean now. Oh yeah, absolutely. So that was referring to, I mean, I always love to give credit where credit is due to this guy, Darren Allen, who's an anarcho-primitivist um, in England, uh, who has been writing some interesting stuff around, around his views. But yeah, I mean, um, and you know, he's a total, you know, anti-vax. Um, but you know, the, the question of whether this was like, you know, hard conspiracy. If there was like a, a nuclei of like intelligence operatives, you know, who were like, okay, you know, China and, you know, Europe and America kind of working together that we're going to test drive unleashing, you know, moderately, you know, deadly pandemic on the world that will allow us to actually, you know, do all the things that we want to do, which is like, you know, lockdown, force more biometric IDs, um, uh, suspend civil rights, you know, make protests impossible. You know, knowing that we're moving towards an ecological catastrophe and that we have to be ready to, you know, regiment the population and control them in a, in a more extreme way than we've ever done before. Uh, this, will be, this will be an opportunity to do that. So that's the hard conspiracy idea, which, I mean, I'm, I'm still not averse to that, you know, being the case that I, I, I you know, I think that there's reasons to think that uh, if you trace some of these lines that, um, that that's all quite possible. Uh, soft strategy is more, it's just, you know, Darren writes a lot about, he wrote a book called 33 Myths of the System, that it's just the logic of the whole system that we're in, that it's, you know, basically, uh, you know, egoic, uh, materialistic, control-oriented, and has, you know, sought over centuries and centuries to, you know, appropriate more control, more technologies of control, and um, this is just a logical, you know, continuation, uh, in, you know, of that. Hmm. Are you familiar? I think you are familiar with the Wetiko or Wetiko mm -hmm, uh, sure. work, right? As well. I mean, that somebody brought that up in another conversation as being to see, seeing it almost like this. I don't even know what to call it, like a a virus of the, I mean, the mind or the social structures that that sort of manifests as a civilization or a technocratic agenda. I mean, what's your understanding of that? I mean, I don't know if that's more of an occult now um, dive, but yeah, I'm curious. Sure. I mean, well, so I mean, um, uh, my you know, favorite occult articulation of what's happening in the world is from Rudolf Steiner. Uh, and I've written about him a lot and gave uh, some lectures about him and stuff. So, you know, St Steiner was um, a very complicated figure. I don't know if you've discussed him before on this, this. Not yet. I mean, he actually made some very fascinating statements about vaccines over 100 years ago. I don't know if you've saw, seen those. Uh, they circulated all over the place. He was like, in the future, there's going to be a vaccine that, that separates uh, the human being from their spiritual dimensions. And that'll mm -hmm. be like the you know, a, a final stage in um, this process that he talked about of the incarnation of Aramon. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, so Steiner um, was a visionary who from a very early age was able to see into all these different uh, spiritual realms. Um, you know, my sense is, yeah, he had a natural gift in the same way you and I might have to take you know, ayahuasca or psilocybin to see visionary realms, he could, 
basically see these things whenever he closed his eyes. And he spent many years uh, studying information that he could access in this way and, and um, ended up not talking about it until he was 40 because he realized that most people just think he was crazy. He waited to a doctorate in philosophy. Then he got involved in theosophy. Uh, then he started his own group, Anthropos, 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 how do you say it? Anthroposophy? Anthroposophy. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then he, then in the last decades of his life, he, he, unbelievably productive, he created like hundreds of lectures, many books. Um, and um, so he was an esoteric Christian. So he believed there were really crucial aspects of, of this, this Christian esotericism that needed to be understood in a more complex way. So he, he said that instead of there just being the devil that you know the Bible talks about, they're actually different kind of spiritual forces, invisible beings and, and groups of beings that are working on humanity all of the time. And he differentiated, you know, two of these main sort of, you know, from his side, you know, somewhat negative or at least threatening forces as the Luciferic and the Aramonic. Uh, and L Lucifer, the term really means light bringer. So in many ways, Lucifer is a great boon to humanity. And, and in fact, he had a magazine called Lucifer Gnosis uh, back around like 1910, 1920. Wow. Um, but, he's, but he talked about, uh, so Lucifer is like the force that pulls us up and away from the earth towards like beauty and grandeur. And like, uh, you know, we talk about genius, like the, the genie is the origin of the word genius. Like people who become possessed by a genie have genius. And, and that's actually because they're, for Steiner, they've made an a, a alliance, uh, you know, consciously or not with a Luciferic uh, being. You know, so Mozart or Shakespeare or whatever like that. Uh, Araman is from Zoroastrianism. It's sort of the evil earth spirit. That's that. Whereas Lucifer is pulling us up and away from the earth towards like genius and haughtiness. Araman is pulling us down towards minerality, materialism, technology, sterility. So Steiner, writing over 100 years ago, thinking over 100 years ago, believed that we were going to see the incarnation of Araman in the 21st century. And um, I still find this incredibly resonant when we see things like artificial intelligence and this rush to create a generalized AI and this idea that we're going to do neural links and, and you know hack people's brain stems and connect them directly to the virtual matrix. I mean, to me, this is like exactly what, what Steiner was talking about. So, um, um, yeah, so with Tico is one way of looking at it, but I, but I, but I, but I personally prefer it. You know, obviously, we're talking about things that are in this sort of occult, invisible domain. You know, it's, it's not like you know, science where we can say logically or rationally, this is ultimately it, or this is ultimately more like poetic or musical kind of rephrasings mm. possible. Uh, but, you know, I, I feel this whole aromatic idea is very, is very powerful and, and makes mm -hmm. sense of a lot of the, for me, the trajectories of, of human society. Mm -hmm. uh, one, one thing that you wrote in your article for people who are trying to, they hear a lot of, they'll, they'll hear this and they'll be like, okay, but where, how do I make sense of it? Like, where do I lie on the belief scale, right? Because it's it's a usually a personal process of reading different things and have personal experiences and spiritual beliefs and all these things start to converge into what someone is going to invest, you know, their sense of certainty as to, you know, what is the meaning of this? What is the truth? And you, you had written in your article that... Um, it should be obvious to anyone with an understanding of how the world actually works um, that neither of these things are wholly true, which was sort of the hard conspiracy. Oh, that, was, that was not me. That was Darren Allen's statement. Oh, Darren Allen's statement. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, yeah. you were quoting Darren Allen, and yeah. and and you know this was that you know 
either the what and he was he was referencing either the hard conspiracy that there's this you know intentional cabal that has this uh, malefic intent versus sort of this sort of like bungling group of bureaucrats and technologists technocrats that are just having to go with it and and so he says neither of these things are wholly true and crucially even if they are it doesn't matter he says everything that has happened is entirely and completely consonant a with ordinary self-interest and b with the goals and motives of a civilized technocratic system 10 millennia in the making which was built from a from this self-interest um and isn't there a, a sense that if we can look really clear at this um that 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 what we're experiencing is is a byproduct actually of the the way in which both hu human beings are constructed to always pursue that self-interest even at the cost of the betterment of other beings um and when that gets uh out of control and we can continue to build upon that in this sort of technocratic agenda that we're in, that we're going to see the kind of world that we're seeing today, right? Regardless of where you lie on the spectrum. Well, can I, can I just add an adjunct then maybe before passing over to Daniel? Because yeah, Zamir, when I hear you say that, I think of the conversation we have with Tyson, uh, Tyson Young-Comporta, right? Uh, Daniel, you might've heard Sand Talk, right? Um, his book. But he, basically he, he spoke about the nature of culture as a, as a sort of mitigation or a uh, uh, how it deals with narcissism, like yeah. that—that that a culture in some—I mean, he's—he doesn't really make pan-indigenous statements, but what he's saying is, you know, a culture how it deals with that narcissistic impulse uh, is sort of its measure of being able to properly steward, you know, citizens or conscious beings, you know, into right relationship with life, and that if a culture doesn't have those rites of passage, doesn't have those cultural um, ways that the the sort of unleashed narcissistic impulse, right, is is what we see now on mass because we've lost all those checks. It's sort of another dimension of it. And yeah, Daniel, I know, I mean, you've spent a lot of time in yeah, studying cultures and, and how to, or even like consciousness, of course, with all the psychedelic work, but how do you now or understand this as a, yeah, like a, as a, as the wake of essentially the loss of those deep cultural uh, necessities? Um, let's see. Well, yeah, I mean, um, of course, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, it's um, clearly, um, yeah, the narcissism and the psychopathy have gotten out of bounds in, in this current system. And uh, I mean, you know, when you were reading uh, what I wrote about, you know, from Darren Allen, what I quoted from him, you know, I don't necessarily, I mean, it's like, uh, yes, yeah, so on the one hand, it's all systemic. I mean, there's this sort of, you know, the control system, you know, we went from initiation, you know, in the, you know, mystery school traditions to indoctrination. And so there was more of a hierarchical, you know, system of control to like priests and, and kings rather, you know, whereas in um, indigenous cultures, they tend to be much more flat hierarchically. And even if there's a chief, the chief, um, you know, is more, is more ruling by consensus. You know, it's, 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 you know, it's like they're not able to order people to go into battle or to do anything. Uh, a, a book that I wrote about in How Soon Is Now is by this anthropologist, Pierre Klaus, uh, Society Against the State, uh, who looked at that in terms of Amazonian societies. Um, so yeah, I think all of that is the case. And, but on the other hand, uh, because we've created these hierarchical structures where, you know, psychopaths and so on are, um, given a huge advantage uh, because they don't care about externalities or don't, you know, don't have compassion. Um, you know, I, I slightly disagree 
I don't disagree with Darren. I mean, it's like, you know, I, I think that Darren's idea is very, very good and, and well stated, but, um, you know, you, you do have conspiracies of psychopaths to do different things, you know, as we saw, for instance, with the Nazi Holocaust and so on. So, you know, we, we can't rule out the possibility that there actually are, you know, um, psychopaths who are organizing, you know, who, who have looked at the same ecological data that you and I have looked at and, and have said that, you know, have asked themselves, how do we maintain control, you know, in a situation that's going to move more and more towards chaos in, in many respects, you know. Um, Has that not existed throughout civilizations all throughout, I mean, as long as we know for thousands and thousands of years? I mean, it's not like we're living in a privileged point in history where that's a novel phenomena. Well, we're living in a specific point in history where things are different. I mean, for instance, we actually now have the technological tools, you know, potentially to establish, you know, long-term domination, you know, physically and psychologically. Mm -hmm. um, you know, as we're seeing with the algorithms of the social media that like uh, Tristan Harris and Daniel Schmachtenberger just did a great podcast with Joe Rogan where they really went into how this is, you know, these are being hijacked, you know, our psychologies are being hijacked and used against us to literally them building, you know, killer drones and, you know, robot, you know, policemen and, and military who, you know, as a human being, you're not going to have a chance, um, you know, in, 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 a, in a conflict uh, against the level of technocratic force that's, that's, that's being amassed against you. So th this is literally an inflection point in human history because this has never existed in this way before. Hmm. Um, I don't know if I answered your question though, so I'm, yeah, so I'm trying to come back to it a little bit. Yeah, well, I mean, one piece though, then this whole idea of, of um, control or mass control as well. I mean, you referenced in the essay, the uh, the talk that I, I saw as well with, I think Matthias, I can't remember his last name, but it, you talked about mass formation. Yeah. Right, and uh, I'd love for you just to speak a bit about that. Like, like again, how could this be that so many people could participate in something somewhat unawares uh, again, I just thought that was really illuminating. Uh, right, I'm trying to remember um, mass, yeah, transformation, kind of like how um, how the media has uses an indoctrination mechanism or hypnotizing mechanism in a way. I think just a sense of how, yeah, like how the people can. It's a kind of groupthink, of course, right, where there's a sort of self-referential um, truth gets gets reverberated throughout a culture until again it starts to unmoor from. Any any alternatives that might threaten it, right? So, he talks about that as as a mass formation effect, um, and that to me was illuminating because I did feel like why is it that uh, there's a sort of I don't know how to even to call it like certain things just start to drift to the wayside of of acceptable conversation or um, right the ability to even let in information that no longer fits in with that reality. Yeah. I mean, I'll just talk about um, like vaccine. Uh, um, I don't know what we call it issues or, or like basically the amount of people that are saying, Hey, wait a second, I have had a, you know, a, a ill effect from the vaccine, but how the mainstream seems in, in, just incapable or unwilling to even let that in. Yeah. Right. Even friends, right. Who are, who are kind of like already just dismissed them outright. And I'm not saying that means therefore all the vaccines are awful, but even just the fact of the existing of a higher degree than is being reported, right. It's just not allowed in. Did you, have you got into uh, Giorgio Agamben at all? Not yet. Uh, he wrote, I think, uh, Homer Saker, Bear Life or whatever. Um, I mean, you know, so, you know, I mean, I, I mean, I, I like him as political thinker and also, um, you know, Antonio Negri uh, talks about, uh, you know, how in, you know, a uh, civilization like ours, post-industrial society, the, you know, the, the actually most essential form of production 
is no longer making things. It's the production of subjectivities or the production of sub subjectivity itself. Um, and, and actually on some larger scale, our, our civilization is suffering from a legitimation crisis, right? Can you just tease out those words? Because I mean, they might be abstract for people, even for me. Like, what do you mean sub production of subjectivities and a legitimization crisis? Sure. So, I mean, um, well, I mean, the combination of like, you know, education, you know, government and media and now social media, you know, sculpt, uh, you know, shape, uh, produ produce subjectivity uh, in a way, like in a way that people don't even recognize. So, you know, their, their wants and dreams and desires, like, you know, you want to go and buy the new pair of sneakers because, you know, you saw so-and-so wearing them and your peer group is talking about them and, you know, Nike says, just do it. And you want to associate with that, you know, so, so, you know, you're, your whole way, you know, for most people, like, um, you know, their model of relationships is socially constructed, you know, by the media, you're supposed to have this type of, you know, relationship and this type of family and live in this way, you know, and these are the goals that, you know, you're supposed to, you know, look for and, you know, technology, the, you know, the vision of a, of a, you know, increasingly technologically advanced future has to be made like super appealing, you know, that's why you need people like, um, you know, Jason Silva, for instance, who, you know, is a mass promoter of like technological globalization and how amazing all the all the gadgets are. And, you know, that's why somebody like that gets all the TV spots and so on. <laughs> you know, so, so you, you need you need you need like this, this, this the, the giant machine of indoctrination to produce the subjectivities who, who are compliant and complicit, you know, with 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 the, the structure that's going that's that's happening. If that makes sense. Yeah. So the bigger the disconnection from reality, the more valued it is you know, people who can produce consent to <laughs> uh, sort of a fabrication that we can all still keep going along with it kind of thing. Well, you, you had a great line though, uh, Daniel, too. Maybe this is appropriate because it links, you said uh, one of the main areas of concern over the mass vaccination program is that it reinforces the tendency of capitalist post-industrial civilization to contort knowledge into an instrument supporting a particular model of reality or worldview. Um, did I write that? <laughs> I always forget what I wrote. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah we, the same, I guess that's a similar kind of idea. But I mean, um, but I wanted to address the second thing as he was talking about legitimation. Yeah. You know, so, it's like, um, so for for a society to continue itself, uh, to perpetuate itself, people, you know, people in some way or other have to, you know, believe there's some some reason rationale for it. Like you know, so yeah. you know, so like in the 1950s, you know, there there was the Horatio Alger myth. And everybody was going to progress and, and get better, better, you know, standards of living and live longer and longer and so on. And then in the 60s, there was like, you know, civil liberties and people were going to become, you know, more free and have more access to education. And now it's kind of very difficult to figure out, you know, what's what's the legit legitimation? Like what, what's the story or the mythos of, of this society um, that people should buy into? Yeah. Know, for instance, it's now, you know, an oligarchy. You know, people are not, you know, benefiting in, in general, you know, from, you know, the new wealth that gets created, 93 cents of every dollar goes to the top, like 0.1% who, you know, made out like bandits, you know, dur during the pandemic and so on. But what do you so, think it is? What, you know, your, fin your finger being on the pulse, you know, that, what, what, do you, what do you think it is for this time, though? Even though you say it's hard to say. Are you talking about the mythos? I don't, I don't the mythos. one right now. But, but so, 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 I mean, that's the, that's, that's why the society, one of the reasons why it's like kind of like, you know, uh, growing, you know, kind of crisis, you know, in a way, slowly, slowly simmering. But I mean, um, you know, uh, technology is still the dream, like the metaverse, you know, so, you know, Zuckerberg, you know, ha you know Neuralink, you know, Elon Musk, you know, going to the Mar Mars, 
you know, space flight or you know, immersive uh, virtual realities uh, or the possibility of, you know, immortal life through technological, you know, uh, prosthesis, uh, you know, you know. Those are the the bargaining chips of, of right. society to to keep people, uh, you know, to buy people's um, kind of uh, continued acceptance of it in a way. Well, acceptance of it, and perhaps even as you were saying that, I was thinking of how, you know, even our response to the pandemic has been. Well, you know what? Here, you know, our technology is always going to sweep in and save the day, and that you know maybe we're we're hurtling towards climate crisis and towards you know, these disasters, but somewhere in the back of people's minds, the operating mythos is that we're going to continue to technologically progress in such a way that we will be saved. And that allows us to keep going on with things as they are, because that myth is somehow deeply embedded within the substructure of the psyche, right? Absolutely. Perfect. And then you can see what the mRNA vaccines, it's like a new technology um, you know, that, um, you know, even though it, 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 you know, it failed generations of animal tests uh, and hadn't been used because there was mass suspicion around it, you know, they, they, they really pushed it into, um, you know, reality as fast as they could, um, you know, with the question of, yeah, anyway, so, so, um, but so Agamben's idea is that, you know, the last thing that a society such as this one that's lost a lot of its um, legitimacy, there's no longer a Christian myth, you know, there isn't really a myth that we're all going to materially progress. Uh, you know, that's all sort of beginning to crumble. Uh, okay. is, is holding on to life itself as something that that society can protect. Um, you know, and um, can you elaborate you like on individual that? life? Is that What's what you're that? saying? Do you mean like individual life? That yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so yeah. you know, like the hospitals that you know, the nursing homes and the hospitals that are meant to extend life as long as possible. That you know, there's like. Um, you know, the, 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 the you know, protection of, of life and the extension of life is now seen as like the ultimate good. Uh-huh. So that means that the doctor, if that's the only thing that's left is legitimation, is the ultimate authority, right? So Fauci becomes the sort of ultimate figure of, of, of you know, authority because he's the one who's theoretically holding like the power of life and the power of science and progress and so on. Mm-hmm. And so that's why there's such a conscripted, you know, ideological kind of archetypal energy on, you know, we just have to believe what this guy says because he is, you know, the, the holder of, of, you know, the last bit of, you know, knowledge that we consider sacred in some sense, which is just life itself as having, as having value. Mm-hmm. You, yeah, you bring up an interesting image there too. It almost feels like, uh, like he becomes the, the prophet on the Mount or something, right? They're the, the, the one looked to, and in some ways, yeah, he has become, like you say, this archetypal figure. Um, that in some ways mirrors the, like, the, again, this techn- technological wonder image, uh, which I think you spoke about in the same essay and which I hadn't really heard for the first time, but it seemed to be saying that the, you know, the ultimate um, sort of success of this program of the technological meeting, the bio, uh, the, the one's own being is to approach the body like an operating system. Right. And you, you, you talk about Bill Gates also having this image of um, essentially creating a, you know, a system of upgrades through the body's OS and that that, you know, you get your booster every six months or the next line of, you know, optimizations. And, and that, you that was actually, it. Well, yeah, that too. But that, that actually was that's a that's a that's a utopian image. Right. To that worldview. It's like, oh, wouldn't, it's so great. We can just upgrade the body and um, and how that, of course, from the other side seems like an utter nightmare. Yeah, and that's the CEO of Moderna has has you know totally says that that they see the you know mRNA platform as as an operating system, 
and now that we've taken one, the, you know, they'll just keep keep doing that. So you know, that's yeah, you know, I mean, whether once again, whether it's soft strategy or hard conspiracy, um, you know, I, mean, I, I think most of these people genuinely think they're doing good, but but their whole you know logic is totally encompassed in, in this sort of one-dimensional kind of rationality and, and sort of seeing you know, the biological organism as, you know, an input output machine, you know, like, like any other type of machine. Um, whereas I don't think we actually know yet, you know, all the aspects of, of, you know, biological existence and, you know, we know the placebo effect and the, you know, the biology's connection to the, the, the psychic realm and, and so on. Um, right. So I feel we're, yeah, we're closing down our, our options, uh, you know, by going in this direction. You know? I, I feel like you're, as you're speaking, I've been asking myself, okay, but why, why, why are we going, who's going along with it and, and why? And I think of like, you know, my father's been a very successful businessman. My earlier life, I was around people with a lot of money. Okay. And, you know, the more that you step into those worlds, there's a, just a deep, further and further disconnection from the, from the ground, from life, from like physical nature environment, um, from real deep lasting human connections and relationships you know the very fabrics of things that that have that hold us in bond with with society and with nature and there's a you know that as you see how people get further and further abstracted from that how it 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 makes someone very prone to that sort of like technocratic myth like you you're already somehow disconnected from it so now you can just your mind can just soar into that and it's somehow something that the more and more people get disconnected from from the earth and from the real bonds of human connection and relationship the more easy it is and the more natural it is it almost seems to just go along with that mythic substructure the technocratic one that we're talking about right i mean that just seems to be what's happening you know, i don't know how intentional it is but i can see why it happens though yeah well for me also a gambin's perspective helped me to understand why the people who are most um, seem to be most um, kind of uh, complicit or most most have got along with this with the most enthusiasm in a way seem to be like, you know, secular liberals and progressives uh, who for them, the church of science and, and the doctor at, at, at the apex of like the pyramid of science has become like a religious uh, article of faith. Uh, and vaccines as uh, the great example of how modern medicine uh, has this, you know, life-giving power. Um, you know that that's that's become a, a very solid structure for them. Mm. And it's quite interesting for me that you see more like the right wing. You know, the the you know what did they what did Hillary Clinton call them, the deplorables? You know, although it's all convoluted and it's connected to you know other ideas that we may not like or or, or find consonance with. You know, they're, they're, they're in the U.S. and around the world, the, the ones, you know, with a, a, a sort of seam of, you know, neo-spiritual, you know, people who used to seem kind of left-wing, you know, they, they've kind of joined forces as, as the anti-vax contingent. It, it's quite fascinating. And, the, and the, the secular liberals and progressives, you know, who are like with, the, you know, Biden, you know, and, and with Fauci have uh, become kind of like, in a way, from my perspective, almost like authoritarian, you know, around, for instance, like the mask wearing and so on. And then... I mean, as, as I mentioned before we started, I'm right now, before today, I was, you know, before we came on, I was trying to speed read, um, you know, RFK Jr.'s uh, new book on Fauci. And I interviewed RFK. It was a little bit of a contentious interview, um, you know, because I actually find some of his um, evidence and facts a, a little uh, histrionic, like like his approach a little, a little hyperbolic or histrionic. And yet a lot of it is also very sensible and, and, and resonates with me. So... Um, 
Yeah. So, so I mean, his his um, uh, his perspective. Well, I mean, he lays out and he has it all. You know, going over the footnotes and going back to the original articles. That, for instance, you know, Fauci himself said early on that mask wearing was basically a symbolic gesture. You know, and there hasn't really been you know cloth masks that everybody's still wearing on the subway. You know, there's very for a healthy person to wear a mask seems to have more negative health effects for that person than to have any positive benefit for society. And yet, this has become you know. A wildly, you know, conscripted idea, and you see people in their cars alone wearing masks, mm-hmm. or walking along the street, you know, or in a, in a, on a jogging on a path, or a bicycling wearing masks. There's absolutely no, you know, scientific or medical justification for that whatsoever. So it, it almost feels like people want to conform to have this like badge of, of conforming, you know, with this new paradigm, which is mm-hmm. which is I find very eerie. You know? This I'm glad you mentioned that too because. Uh, well, just this idea of the symbolic participation as well, right? And I mean, I know some people might be listening to and say, well, what do you mean? There's like lots of studies now that say masks, you know, work well and da da da. So, I mean, I don't know if I want to get into that side, but just to recognize there is a symbolic aspect to that where and you even mentioned, I think when you got back to New York after being away that you you felt the sense of maybe a, a communitarianism, you know, a, we're all in this together kind of vibe, which is beautiful in in its some ways, right? But how that also can get hijacked uh, to participate in, again, like agendas that um, maybe are less visible to those participating. Like, it, you know, feels good to say yeah, we're all in this. And, yeah. and yet, of course, this swimming undercurrent is, is, is all around. Um, and so, I mean, I'm, I really appreciated how you then extrapolated. I mean, again, I think you were uh, referencing another author, which you could probably name in a moment, but we're heading towards these four futures. Yeah. Right. There was the four. And uh, this might be a good time, I feel, to if you could illuminate this four, if you can recall them. Yeah, sure. So, uh, I mean, I've been, you know, doing these essays on Substack. Of course, I hope you know, the listeners will, will, will join up. But um, some of them have done a series around like post-capitalism and looking at different uh, mappings around, around where we can go from here. And there's a book called uh, Four Futures. I'm not remembering the author's name at the moment, but he talks about. Um, Phrase. What's that? Phrase, F-R-A-S-E. Oh, yeah, I think you're right. Exactly. So there's like, um, you know, abundance and uh, equality, uh, abundance and hierarchy, uh, you know, uh, scarcity and hierarchy, um, uh, abundance and equality. So those are the four. Abundance, equality, scarcity, equality, abundance, hierarchy, scarcity, hierarchy. And abundance equality would be communism, you know, luxury, automated communism, which is the title of another book, uh, which I really appreciated. you know, scarcity and uh, uh, equality would be more like socialism, where we'd all recognize that we have to ration and we sort of work together on that. Um, you know, abundance and hierarchy. I can't remember what that one uh, was, was, was now. That but, was exterminism. Well, exterminism is scarcity and hierarchy. Oh, right. Inequality uh, and abundance was rentism. Rentism. Right, right, right. Exactly. So, yeah, it's... Um, yeah, the, scary, the most scary one. Rentism is definitely where we seem to be heading. I mean, if you look at the... World Economic Forum and the sort of campaign they did, uh, they tried to launch as you, you will, you know, in the future, you will own nothing and you will be happy, uh, which you couldn't imagine something more, you know, creepy in a sense, because, you know, it's not saying we will own nothing and we will be happy. You know, no, you who are watching this will own nothing. We will own everything is, is the clear implication there. Uh, so that's rentism uh, where we have to, and, you know, now we're seeing, you know, all these apps we used to get for free. We have to pay monthly. Sorry, I just interrupt for a second. Isn't that what people think of as communism, though? You will own nothing and you will be happy? 
Well, it, it would be if, if other, but that, you know, communism in theory, everything is, is you know, it's collectively owned, right? Like, you know. Um, so it's, we will own nothing and we will be happy. Yes, exactly. Yes. You, you will own nothing and you will be happy, um, you know, because we say you're going to be happy uh, would be rentism, you know, I think. Uh, but yeah, so the, 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 the scariest option is that you have, once again, you know, the sort of uh, coterie of, you know, evil genius psychopaths who, you know, work in the intelligence, military intelligence services of like China and the US and Britain and so on. And they've come together behind the scenes. They're like, fuck, you know, five years, there's not going to be enough food. Ten years, there's going to be a billion, you know, climate refugees. Um, you know, we, we, we might as well start reducing the population as quickly as we can. Uh, and, you know, or even introducing more ill health to the population. So that'll be easier to, to call them and they'll be more controllable uh, as, th as things get worse. You know, and I personally can't say that that's out of the question uh, for me in terms of why this is happening now and, and what's behind it. Oh. So when you say you can't say that it's out of the question, purely um, from a journalistic perspective, you know, I, I, I can understand you, you want to keep your, you not have, go into things with blinders, right? And, and part of your work and, and gift that you do is you're willing to go into any territory and test it out and see kind of where it lands in you, right? But when you say I'm not willing to entertain, does that mean like you, I mean, what percentage of belief do you have in that kind of thing? Like, I mean, how much does that, because allowing that to really occupy you can take a can have deep implications into how you see the world and, and perhaps it does. I mean, in, in, you know in, in theory you know we would have to you know think about and you know uh, how we reorganize some type of you know social movement you know quickly uh, to deal with some of the you know if, if we agreed you know on on some of the things that were happening yeah it, it would put pressure on us to you know try to figure out you know an, an escape pattern um, and, um, I mean, I'm still, another book that I wrote about recently is called uh, Inventing the Future, uh, which I'm in, in love with. I think it's a great book by this guy, um, uh, Srenik and Alex Williams, I think. Uh, and, you know, their, their perspective is that, uh, you know, what, what could happen would be, I mean, over the last 50 or 60 years, uh, neoliberalism has been the hegemonic, uh, ideology of the, of, you know, the modern world, um, and, um, you know, where governments and finance institutions and, and corporations, you know, kind of work hand in hand to create a certain reality. Uh, and what's needed is a sort of counter hegemonic project uh, that would require a ecosystem of organizations and social movements working together towards an alternative uh, utopian model, you know. Um, and the reason you need a utopia is that's, you know, people are not going to be galvanized. Like, I think Extinction Rebellion, I'm friends with the people who started it. I, I think it's, you know, beautiful. They've done great work, but I, it, it, it bounces off the working class. Like people don't, you know, people don't want to think about extinction. They don't even want to think about rebellion. It's just, it's too negative. It attracts, it's an attractor for people who share certain left-wing ideas or perspectives. It's not, it's not a, it's not a way to build like a, a type of, you know, groundswell mm -hmm. movement that could transform society. Uh, so what Inventing the Future proposes is that looking at the, all, all the possible options for what would be a galvanizing social movement for the future, they suggest a, a post-work uh, society. Uh, whereas, you know, where, where, you know, people have something like universal basic income, or they don't really like the income part of that equation so much. Uh, so they feel, you know, liberated with their time to then, you know, use their time for what they really care about. 
you know, which doesn't mean they won't be productive, but there wouldn't be the same dread and insecurity that, you know, I mean, the average family in the U.S., I think, have $400 in savings. So if they miss like one paycheck or have one medical emergency, they basically, you know, are, are freaking out, you know. Mm-hmm. So in order to have that, don't you need the fulfillment of that sort of like technological, um, yeah. you know, dream? Right? Yeah, you do. No, no, yeah, for sure. This is this is a pro-technological uh, approach. It's like it's like the fully automated luxury community that we use technology to liberate humanity from scarcity uh, and from drudgery. But we use it, you know, rationally and effectively, you know, to do that on the largest scale possible. Um, so, you know, so. Um, but anyway, I just and we can talk about this more. Cause, I mean, I, I'd love to talk about this. It really interests me. But yeah. to get back to it, so you know, the question of what proportion I think that there are monsters uh, organizing this. Um, not the most interesting question for the reasons that Darren also says. I mean, um, you know, to me, to me, it does seem highly likely. You know, when you look at the work that was done with these viruses, when you look at um, Echo Health Alliance, who were, you know, not only working on the coronaviruses, you know, with bats, the one that obviously went rogue and has caused all these problems, or was, you know, released semi-intentionally, we don't know. But they were, they were also working on MERS, which had something like a 35% fatality rate. So they were doing gate of function research with mares that if that one had gotten unleashed, you're talking about you're talking about, you know, a billion people passing, you know. So so, you know, and they're literally doing this, you know, and we don't know why, you know, um, you know, the, the justification seemed very flimsy. Uh, so what, you know, what was the justification? What's that? What was the justification? Well, I mean, the justification for game of gain of function research is that you're um, learning about the pathogens. So that you can then more quickly create vaccines uh, in case they get unleashed in that way, mm. you know. But but you know the I mean that in the 2016, a bunch of virologists uh, said that this this type of research, I think particularly the ones with the coronavirus bats and so on, needed to be stopped because it was it was not likely to be doing anything useful. It was creating non-natural risks in the environment, and so then they stopped the U.S. stopped funding it for I think like a year or two, and then started again in like 2017 or 18 or something. Mm. Uh, so it's not like, and it's, you know, it's, it's, what's, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. And it's interesting, those same virologists who decried this game of fun- function research have not, as I, I see much public expression from them um, yeah. as a group uh, around what's happened. So that's, I mean, yeah, it's highly suspicious. I mean, for one, you know, even just as a general sense of it. And I do feel like that those things tend to be dismissed outright again by the same, uh, I don't know, progressive liberal side that is like, well, um, not worth considering, you know, and, and, and the strategy for quote, what do we do now? I do feel as well, like I'm more drawn to this sense of this, um, like how do we respond in a meaningful way? And do you think that the, in some ways, the vax question or the mandate question, which can be a very, um, like barometer, right. Of like where people are at or what, what they're willing to go along with in some ways, um, is like a, the distraction from like the deeper work or is it actually like a fulcrum point of you know where one falls does that tend to cor- correlate to their willingness to i mean see this bigger picture or not right or or to yeah to participate in such a way that like you said i mean working towards a sort of movement that is, is uh, inclusive enough um to to really yeah engage now with what's needed that's a very good question. And, um, you know, I, I wish I had a fantastic answer. Okay. Uh, I mean, I, I do think that it's um, compelling that so many people, you know, are up in arms around this, particularly in Europe, where you have like, you know, mm-hmm. if you look at the recent protests in Trieste, you had like hundreds of thousands of people. I mean, 
you know, wanting to not be, you know, have vaccine passports or not be forced to vaccinate to work. And even how you see in, you know, the U.S., the medical professionals are leaving their jobs, you know, so, you know, there, 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 you know, there, there is a group there that's responding, you know, intuitively and perhaps rationally to something they see as a threat, you know, and also the fact that, um, you know, they're not acknowledging, you know, natural immunity. If you had COVID, if you still have to get the vaccine and, and you know, natural immunity seems to be the most effective defense. It really feels that, and, and we know that the pharmaceutical companies, you know, have not only infiltrated, you know, the government lobbying organizations, as RFK K talks about in that book, but they're also deep in there with like the World Health Organization and, and Gates, who has a lot of money invested in, in, in the uh, pharmaceutical companies that are making the vaccines. You know, so there's a lot of reasons to be suspicious of, of the whole thing that's happening, mm -hmm. um, unfortunately. Um, yeah. So the question is, how could you, if you're, if you're thinking about, you know, okay, we need to actually, you know, build some type of larger scale you know, movement to move society in a new, new direction. You know, the, I think this, this post-work idea that they put out in Inventing the Future is excellent, but you need to find a way, you know, communication strategy-wise, language-wise, where you bring in the whole, these people who are actually already activated around these issues. Um, and um, yeah, I mean, the, pro the problem is that, you know, post-work or UBI is a hard sell for a lot of people who, you know, have been, you know, st still kind of laboring under the Protestant work ethic. Yeah. And this idea that, you know, work is, you know, the liberating thing. And if you don't have, you know, you don't have, you know the work to do to make the income, you know, you're somehow, you know, marginal, you don't matter and so on and so on. So, I mean, that's like, they talk about inventing the future. You actually have to, convince people that it's okay to be to be lazy sometimes like you know mm -hmm. okay it's like not everybody has to work but then you know but obviously you know as we know from looking at the ecological information you know what we actually need to do is get people not doing all of this work which is really not helping anything and have them start doing all this incredibly essential regenerative work that needs to happen like we need to you know, shift from industrial farming on a large scale to like small scale permaculture, organic agriculture that replenishes, you know, regenerates soil. You know, we need to do ocean aquaculture on a huge scale to leach out, you know, all the CO2 with massive kelp farms, you know, et cetera. I mean, we know, you know built rooftop gardens, insulation in, in urban environments so that, so that we're not wasting all the energy that we're using and so on. So, I mean, there's a million incredibly important tasks that aren't getting done. Then there's a lot of crap stuff that is getting done you know, David Graeber talks about his bullshit jobs and, you know, so, somehow we need a movement to address all of that, you know, or, or we just go down with the ship, which, which definitely seems most likely. Mm. Uh, well, this may be a moment to just remind the viewers as well, if they do have a question or a comment, you know, they want to add to the chat box and uh, maybe we can find a way to weave it in. Um, I, I do appreciate where we've landed here too with the conversation because, you know, I also know, uh, you know, we, we met Daniel, like, I don't know, 10 years ago. I mean, then I think it was just a few months after Occupy had happened. And, um, you know, I've also tracked your work for a while in terms of how soon is now was really like, a, uh, I, I believe a sincere effort to try to build some kind of cohesive map, right, of possibility uh, of, of how a different society might look. Um, and at the same time, you know, I wonder how much do you think has actually been done in that way of moving towards that? Because you know, th this idea of this uh, sort of communist utopia, right, of technology being used to lessen the, you know, quote, drudgery of work and, and labor saving devices seems to be uh, it still hasn't materialized. Right. In, a, in, a, in, a, some, in some ways it hasn't in the sense of, you know, certain technological marvels of, you know, access to every song that's ever been on your phone, stuff like that. Right. But at the same time as well, it's like people seem like they're just caught in this 
wheel, right? That just keeps going faster and faster and faster. I certainly know that's how I feel. I just feel like times are speeding up rather than slowing down. There seems to be some deep irony in that, that somehow we have all these things that help us, you know, have more free time. And it's almost like there's no capacity to be with that time in a fashion. It's like, it just needs to be filled up again. I don't know if it's this modern mania for urgency, right? That is just unleashed, but there's just some, I don't see like evidence or maybe you do or don't that, that, you know, just over the hill is that collective, you know, utopia just with that technology. Uh, yeah, well, that, that's the point they make in inventing the future. It's, it's not simply something that's going to happen. It would have to be something that people would, you know, have to understand and, and organize around, you know, making, making that outcome happen. Mm -hmm. um, so, but, you know, I mean, obviously there are things like, you know, automation, you know, self-driving cars, you know, automated checkouts and, you know, basically, you know, I mean, I mean, I'm, I have a lot of, you know, younger friends who just, there's no work at all. They can apply for 200 jobs. I mean, there's, you know, a lot, a lot of jobs are gone and, 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 and um, you know, that's also the pandemic kind of cleared out a lot of that, right? Like money went to the, you know, tiny 0.001% in the form of billions of dollars, you know, and people were unemployed and, and, you know, a lot of the, you know, it's, it's led, it's led to a sort of, you know, structural shift in, in, you know, the labor capital relations, right. Which, you know, accelerating things that were already on the way. You know, I think one of the unaddressed reasons that Trump, for instance, got elected in the U S is, you know, the sort of neoliberal technocrats like Obama and those type of people, Clinton and so on, were like, Oh, like, it's going to be great. We're going to have like self-driving cars and automation, and you know, you, the 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 largest uh, workforce in the U.S. is truck drivers, like three three and a half, three million people or something. Wow. That's one of the only decent jobs you can get, you know, if you don't have a college degree and you can you know be well paid and so on. So for them to say, you know, there's going to be self-driving vehicles is like is like just terrifying to normal working people. So you know, that that's why you would need a, a much more radical approach and and also a kind of educational campaign. Say so yes, we can have self-driving cars. We can take away, you know, you know, yes, you're, you're going to have to be, you know, lose some of this, you know, this type of work, but all these other things that need to be done, you know, you'll be able to do them. You'll be compensated. There'll be a future, a secure future for you on the planet, you know, ra rather than what we're seeing now is just, you know, a bigger and bigger, you know, what's called a precariat, you know, mm. and, and what's also intriguing is that the automation is now moving into what we're formerly kind of like middle-class jobs, like accountants and journalists and so on. You know, they're, they're needed in less and less numbers. I mean, as I hear you say this, though, it, it brings up for me the same kind of feelings that I get when we talk about going to the moon and creating a colony on Mars. I mean, there's feels this in a way kind of a disconnection from the majority of the lived experience of people on this planet. I mean, you travel around the world and we're nowhere near to have uh, a, a society that's so technologically advanced and automated. And even upon that, you would have to trust in the goodwill of the people who are behind the development of these technologies, where right now there's even a struggle to look at, you know, taking accountability for carbon emissions and for large polluting developed countries to be able to take true accountability for it. And then other countries are saying, you know, well, we still still have to do our development to be able to get to that place and we shouldn't be paying for your sins. You know, I mean, we're just so far ideologically uh, from that, from the even the intentions of people who are behind the development of these technologies and the lived realities of billions of people on the planet, it doesn't seem feasible. I mean, well, what does seem feasible? 
Well, <laughs> I think that's a great question, but I, I do think that what's feasible is, as I said, the the, the returning back to what is natural. I think there's Ooh, a that's a, of, that's a tricky that's a tricky question though, because then what is natural? Right? Good. Well, I think that that begs a discussion, right? Mm. But there's a, there's a felt seeing of living. There's a there's a quality that arises from living a natural life in within human relationships, within connection to the world, um, within connection to technology that has the balance where we're able to appreciate. I don't want to go and live without electricity or live without some of the benefits that we've created for a modern lifestyle. But there's um, there's a there's a recognition internally of a sense of like, OK, what is balance within this exploration? And I find that within myself that there's a there's a quality that I yearn for, which is, well, how would it be if I lived with a, a larger collective of people where we were, have some able ability to produce some our own food and in connection, though, with a larger food production system in a way that's balanced, where there's a, a certain amount of dependency and a certain amount of independency where, you know, I'm able to use technology, but I'm not. Um, offloading of the responsibility, for example, of, you know, fundamental needs of, you know, human connection all through my technological devices, but I can use it as a way to communicate or get information or to broadcast. I mean, you know, we're not going to spell it all right now on this call, but I feel like there's a balance that's called for and that the world has space, has capacity for us to live in a balanced way. I truly believe that. Like, we don't need some huge utopian agenda in order for us to just have right relationship. Because if we do, we're always going to be off the plot. That's how I feel. Or, or you could say that, you know, moving towards the right relationship would itself be a kind of utopian project. <laughs> yeah, I mean, perhaps it would be utopian, yeah. but one that I, I feel would uh, maybe perhaps be most inclusive of people's realities. I mean, I mean, a little pushback you know, would, I could offer would be, you know, we know that actually, you know, the people who tend to use less the least amount of like resources and energy are often people who live in dense cities right now. Like if we relocated everybody to rural areas, you know, unless we go back to like the horse or the donkey or something, you know, it also leads to a lot of consumption and so on. I mean, I mean, there are, there are, you know, there, there are advantages of scale in, in having, you know, people located in, in, in dense ur urban environments and, and culture. Like I, I began when I was in Mexico last year, I began to yearn for the opportunity to go to like an avant-garde, you know, play or, or spectacle or something like, um, uh, you know, there are, there are, you know, collisions that happen that are productive, you know, in, in, in these kind of dense urban, urban realities. Mm. But, I, but I think that the point um, that I was trying to make it about inventing the future, which, which I do recommend, you know, which is not, not so dissimilar from how soon as now is that you, you actually do need to have like a, a model of something Like you have to, you have to give people a far-reaching goal it doesn't mean you're not gonna, you know, you're gonna get there, you know, in five years or not. But people have to, you know, so so so, you know, one reason that people don't want to do anything around the ecological crisis is they see it only as something that's going to reduce uh, their 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 lives. Like, okay, I'm gonna have to eat less meat. Uh, I'm not gonna be able to travel. Um, you know, um, you know, I'll be I'll be living in in, in, a, in a in a poorer way. You know, that that's the way the common people of the world, I think, see. You know the, 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 what we're going to be forced to do, and that's why, like, when Extinction Rebellion, you know, tries to stop like a, a, a train in England, the working class people who are commuting, you know, pull them off and punch them. You know, because mm -hmm. they're just like, look, we just want to do our work and be part of this society and so on. So, you know, if you're going to create, 
you know, maybe we're and very likely we're not going to create, you know, it may already be too late. If we were going to try to create some type of, you know, alternative counter hegemonic movement, you know, it has to be pointed towards something. So it could be, and that something could be like, you know, you're not going to be forced to work anymore. You'll, you'll have some basic security for your basic needs. And then you'll have a lot more flexibility. If you want to spend a lot of your time in a community, you know, just growing food, taking care of your family, that'll be available to you. You know, if you want to be a software engineer and contribute productively to, you know, something happening in, in the future or, you know, whatever, you know, that'll also be still available to you, even more available to you. Mm-hmm. So, you know, to, to me, it would have to be a, a project that everybody could grasp that, that would we everybody would agree were, were, was actually increasing their range of possibilities in, in the future. Mm-hmm. You know, and that, that I think is maybe something people could get behind, you know. Yeah, I really appreciate that too. I mean, what's coming to me, and I think you even used the word, but attractor, right? And yeah. I, we spoke with Elizabeth Sartoris earlier in this series as well, who evolutionary biologist, and I think she uses some of that language. I know Tyson Yonkamporta, I think, does as well. Um, but I, I think he uses it in relation to how to engage with complex systems, that there's a need to, yeah, to create these attractors that create a, uh, yeah, a kind of emergent possibility in the field because without it, uh, as you say, like it's sort of it's too incoherent or there's maybe there's only negative attractors which have a sort of limited ability to galvanize, you know, human potential. And, and I, I mean, I'm almost curious if you see within the like the um, Burning Man or these kind of movements. Right. Like I've really been curious how the synchronistic fields work. Right. Where when there's a willingness for people to say yes and there's this vision, visionary possibility, then it's like all of this stuff suddenly you know, magic starts happening in, in lots of ways. And I'm sure you've experienced it many times. Um, and so I'm really curious about how that is kind of can be consciously applied to, you know, the larger social field, the global noosphere as a way of creating these, these positive attractors um, to yeah galvanize, not a prescriptive roadmap, right. To how are we going to do this? Because I think that's inherently limiting. It sort of creates a, I don't know, a, a hierarchy or a, uh, a sort of concretized, you know, realm of possibilities, but, uh, this other way, like I said, like attractors within emergence seem to be, for me, probably one of the only ways that I find compelling of how we might make it. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I mean, um, well, I mean, that's, you know, as you mentioned, my house soon is now thing where I started with my my LSD fueled effort to uh, frantically create like a, a Burning Man revolution. I mean, um, yeah, when I went to Burning Man for the first time, you know, and subsequently, I was in shock, you know, and and amazed, and 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 you know, crying with with you know um, happiness, you know, because you could see how kind of easy it was to kind of um, uh, shift people's way of relating and being together, you know, just just by having a set of new principles, you know, um, um, you know, like leave no trace, and and um, you know, everyone's a participant, and so on. Um, you know, over time, you know, I, I began to feel more wary of, of Burning Man because it, it began to feel that uh, it almost became um, a new kind of um, entertainment complex slash kind of elitist uh, religion for the privileged few mm-hmm. uh, who, um, you know, had maybe learned new practices in their little communities, but but there wasn't really somehow this sort of uh, missionary zeal to, you know, except for a few you know, kind of outliers like Burners Without Borders, you know, which would go around and bring, you know, Burning Man culture to like disaster prone areas and so on. Uh, you know, other than that, yeah, it seemed to get hooked quite a little bit. And as more and more wealth came into it, 
And as Instagram came, as suddenly there were cell phone towers and so on, it seemed like it lost to me a lot of its heart and, mm. and became more of a narcissistic, you know, display culture um, where, where people were not actually anymore um, being very original, you know, where suddenly, you know, because everybody, you know, saw the costumes to wear on Instagrams, so they would dress in those ways and they would all want to be at Robot Heart at 5 a.m. to see <laughs> Dirt Slug play or something. So ra rather than actually being, you know, original and spontaneous, uh, Burning Man became a, another culture. You know, and this is like Terrence McKenna talked about how culture is our enemy, you know, because, mm. you know, you know, we, we, you know, we always want to, you know, most people have the, you know, her desire to conform, you know, to a new culture. So, yeah, I mean, I think Burning Man is better in, in some ways and, and showed us how if you're if you give people in a circumscribed area, at least uh, new principles, you know, they, they, their behaviors can shift. And, you know, that that that's very interesting to me. So do you think then that um, and I'm, I'm getting a little flashback to like old MTV days with the uh, camera shaking. But... I'm sorry about that. I just put on my yeah, knee okay. and change it up. <laughs> <laughs> Um, my, I have a curiosity yeah, around activity going on here too. So it's yeah. just one of those days. Yeah. <laughs> this is a sense of, um, so how might we program or, or invite a kind of principled response to this moment, uh, you know, in a, in a much wider social field. So not within, of course, a desert for seven days, but is there a way to, or have you thought of, or have you seen examples of, right? Like ways to engage, um, let's say emergently, uh, but with some kind of, you, you know, utopic attractor, because uh, this has been, you know, I've been involved in, of course, in media for a decade now as well. And I've been, was really fascinated. You know, I produced the film Sticker Economics with Charles, you know, we worked on How Soon Is Now with you. Uh, these ideas of trying to like put out these attractors, right? And then seeing what would happen. And, and certainly, yeah, you know, limited degree of response and people like, wow, that changed my life and can, can shift the field, but not on mass, right? Not on the level that is needed to actually engage with this. So I've just been, fascinated you know is that a faulty logic that there could be such a thing as uh you know a kind of perfect set of uh you know emergent principles that might galvanize the social field on mass uh, or or you know again i'm just really fascinated by that possibility yeah me too and i don't have a, a firm answer I, I mean um you know so sometimes it, i feel it comes down to you know available funding or capital resources i mean um you know i i um there's a book called Dark Money uh, by this New Yorker writer, Jane Meyer, where she writes about how the Koch brothers, uh, starting in the 60s, decided that they wanted to change society in the direction that they preferred. Uh, so they brought a small group of, uh, you know, sort of similar uh, rich people together in a series of small private conferences until they all had complete coherence in the field around the goals that they wanted to achieve uh, in terms of, you know, you know, reducing public education, you know, turning back civil liberties, turning back abortion and so on. And they're like, hey, well, how are we going to do this? And they approach it like a corporate takeover. And they're like, okay, this is actually going to take decades to do, but we're going to need to create like um, a, a sort of infrastructure of uh, institutions. We'll need think tanks, media sites. We'll need to create uh, social movements that look like the progressive social movements. Um, so they created like the Tea Party and so on. So these are like, you know, astroturf rather than grassroots, like top-down movements. We need, we need public intellectual, intellectuals like Charles Murray, uh, who wrote The Bell Curve, who, um, 
kind of put out the idea that their IQ has a you know, kind of differential compared uh, based on race. So that and that and that you know blacks and so on have like a lower IQ innately, and therefore it doesn't make sense to give them social services because they're never going to thrive in the same way as, as white people or Asian people, you know. So so and they really architected this out, and then over you know 30 years they put hundreds of millions of dollars into this plan and, and they succeeded, you know, to the point where now we have a conservative Supreme Court, Heritage Foundation, you know, basically staffed Trump's cabinet and Trump or Trump-like person is very likely to win again in 2024. Uh, the progressives, the left wing never does this in the same way. I mean, partially because we don't have those types of deep pockets and, and it's kind of easier for a group of wealthy people to agree on maximizing their wealth and power as a goal rather than to get a group of very wealthy people to agree on distributing their wealth and power as a goal. But, yeah. you know, what we would have to basically do is make make a, a, a group of, let's say, the tech, you know, wealthy, for instance, uh, realize that um, this direction is, is, a, is, a, is a, you know, a death march to nowhere, you know, because once, you know, who, you know, you don't, you know, who wants to live in a world where so many people are suffering, you know, where, um, you know, people are tracked all the time, uh, and where the you know the whole environment is is collapsing, you know. So even your beachfront properties are, are not going to be of no use. So yeah. So for me, it's like if you had a, a group of uh, you know well-intentioned wealthy people, uh, potentially you would then have the resources to do like an anti-Fox News, you know, an anti-Facebook, you know, uh, social movements that built on you know the realities of of what you know people need rather than these sort of delusional fantasies of what they're trapped in and so on um but whether that will happen or not I have no clue. one of my concerns hearing this is that it still is playing into this similar kind of well you know if we have a wealthy group of people on this end that can counter the wealthy group of people on that end then it'll all it'll like sort of swing the tide right and you know that we had a talk with uh, Pat McCabe, one of our earlier talks, and she had this line, which is, she said, you know, anything that's forced has to be undone. In the or law, redone. it has to be redone in a way that wasn't won by force. That that was the tone. That was the tone of it. Um, and, um, you know, I'm thinking of that two lines of Martin Luther King that, that, you know, the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice, right? And there, there you know, there's to be an, an intrinsic trust in in it bending towards that not in the, i don't mean to say that it doesn't mean we don't do anything i mean he was a prime example of someone who took action you know he didn't just say well yeah it'll, it'll go that way you know in that case it bent toward justice because he and a lot of other people mobilized absolutely and, and, online, and you know, absolutely and it, he also said that you know we have to learn to mobilize as effectively for peace as we mobilize for war which is what i hear you saying ultimately which is that hey you know what we have to learn to mobilize effectively you know, in order to do this. What I, I sense is that, you know, we got a cop, we got a, we got a question in the comments here and, and I want to preface it because I, <clears throat> anyways, the question was, how can we have a transition towards bioregional governments, governance? Okay. And, and why I think it relates in a way to the pandemic is that I think that we all have this intrinsic sense of like we don't like to feel that our lives are controlled by some group of people that we're completely disconnected from and we don't really know their values <laughs> and maybe the situations and realities of people in one part of the world are different from ours so how can we move towards this sort of bioregional governance right in the sense we also amplify the tendencies towards you know conspiratorial thinking the more and more it feels that you know our fates and our decisions are being controlled by people that we're abstracted from and from value systems that are abstracted. 
So what does it take for us um, to be able to collectively align around what our values are and then be able to sort of enact them? I mean, is it feasible for us to do that? And in, is it not necessary for us to start practicing and doing that now in light of the way in which we have responded to this pandemic, which is with the sort of a, uh, a one solution fits all approach and a, a, a sort of a monotheistic understanding of, of, of what science and information is that's correct in service to this solution. Um, and we've seen the, the fallouts of that. And the ways in which we need to respond is how we intelligently empower ourselves bioregionally to be able to do that. Is that something that you feel is feasible or how might we move towards it? Right. Well, I mean, as Ian knows, I mean, many years ago, I had this company, Evolver, and we created something called the Evolver Network. And the idea was to find a, a juncture between like top down and bottom up uh, social organizing to allow for the emergence of a network of uh, local communities that were coming together on a regular basis to do consciousness raising around you know, all the set of transformational possibilities and actually hopefully to move into action together. And so, for instance, a few of them incubated, like we had a Baltimore group that incubated uh, the B-Note, which was local currency in Baltimore, which was the idea of keeping value in the community. Uh, we had a group in um, Long Beach, affiliated group that created um, a, a time time banking system. Uh, so yeah, so I think what you need is, I mean, I th and you know, I could go into the various reasons why that, you know, collapsed. Part of it was lack of resources for sure, but you you would need a um, you know, community-based network, network of local communities, you know, anybody obviously could start on their own, but I think it's harder to do it without some type of umbrella. Uh, this also seems to be the organizing strategy that, I mean, I haven't studied them in depth yet, like this um, movement in Spain Podemos was using. So we need to, you know, people need to come together in community and, um, you know, connect with each other and suss out and, and, and then, you know, spread the seeds of what the transformational paradigm is, make people aware of it as a living possibility, and then, you know, move into doing stuff together, you know? Well, th this to me is what, you know, I, I appreciate the, I remember those days too, right? I think I met, um, I've met some people I'm still in touch with, you know, I, I think it was like the New York Evolver. Um, and yet at the same time, it seems to me like the real challenge of sustaining, like you said, resource is also necessity. Right. Like at a certain point, the these kinds of efforts, when they're not really bound to what feels like, a, I don't know, some kind of meaningful outcome or, or contending with all the other things that are need to be done. And, you know, all of our busy lives, it's like yeah. they're not there's not a certain yeah have to ness yet. Right. And in some ways, particularly around the pandemic uh, and, you know, mandates for a lot of people, they have to now being barred from, you know, certain activities or or you know, ways and rhythms that they had access to before are now actually thrust into a real necessity to say, okay, well, we actually, we have to organize differently. We have to build uh, a sort of meaningful alternative because now we've been shut out of that system. And so um, I see climate change sort of doing the similar thing, you know, as, you know, here in Western Canada, you know, whole towns are underwater now because of, uh, you know, the storms coming in and mass uh, or heat domes you know we're in this area too as well whole places burning and there's this necessity is now kicking in which perhaps maybe hasn't been there as much in the past you know for certain communities certainly for other communities of course they're thinking of a Kiribati or those places too which are probably a few feet underwater now as well they've been contending with this for some time but I guess some what is the role of that necessity now in activating a lot of these possibilities that have so far remained fairly latent 
That's a great question. And once again, I wish I had like an amazing <laughs> off the cuff answer. I mean, um, you know, I'm seeing so many people I know right now completely galvanized and focused on like the crypto world where they're like, oh, if you get like Luna at 8.2%, then you can trade that in for your tether. Then you get 20% on your Bitcoin if you stake it and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, oh my God, like this is such a nightmare. Like, like yeah. all, all this intellectual effort going into like a para stock market with absolutely no fundamentals, you know, which is, you know, which, you know, it's like, it's like a completely illusionary structure, but yeah, they're highly motivated by the possibility that you could make, you know, a good deal of money, you know, without having to do too much, although your brain, you know, your whole attention gets captured by this thing. So um, it would, it would ha it'd have to be some, you know, construct that, that would make people's lives tangibly better uh, in the short term. And they, mm -hmm. they would have to, you know, like, um, I mean, um yeah they, they would have to they would have to want that i mean um i want to i want to ask you something just to sort of preface because i know we're coming close to the to the end of this which is you know you know our how our response to the pandemic indicates to us how we might respond to the inevitabilities of climate change and the crisis that we're going to face right if you say there's going to be a billion climate refugees there's going to be need for uh, large scale solutions to food shortages, to weather changes, issues that are gonna affect human health and mobility around information surrounding this. Um, this is a, a, seems to me almost like a pre-scale global event that is going happening around the world. And it's, and it's gonna get amplified with what, what we're facing. How do you see the way we respond to this giving a, a, a prophecy, you might say, towards what, what's coming down the road? Um, yeah, I mean, the, I guess the, the, the perspective that I've resonated with the most is from uh, Christopher Bosch, uh, who wrote a book called LSD in the Mind of the Universe. Uh, and actually, I, I put up on the Liminal Institute a, um, a presentation that he gave uh, for a course that I get. I put it up for free, and then we have Q&A after, and I interrogate him about it. But essentially, uh, he wrote a book called Bright, uh, was Dark Night, Early Dawn was his previous book. I don't know if you guys know him at all. Mm -hmm. um, he's amazing. Uh, but um, B-A-C-H-E. But so he did uh, 75 high-dose LSD sessions with a, with a therapist, more than anybody I've ever heard. And what came through over and over again in these sessions was a kind of um, recognition that we were approaching, you know, this catastrophic threshold where, you know, things were going to go berserk. You know, many, many people would die. Systems would collapse. You know, and, 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 in, and in that you know, destructive process, something new would be born, like new communities would, would, would self-organize, mycelial kind of networks of knowledge and communication would form between those communities, and there would be a, um, a, a rapid shift in human con consciousness and uh, awareness over a very compressed period of time uh, as things kind of recrystallize into a different structure. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that, that, that for me is what's resonated most, most deeply. Um, you know, having studied, you know, the data to the extent that I have, you know, which other people have studied it more, I'm sure. But, you know, I, I am I am concerned that we could tip over into just out and out, out, out extinction. If you look at the threat of the methane eruption from the, uh, the, the Arctic leading to like a three degrees Celsius or more temperature rise in a short period of time, which would make agriculture, you know, very difficult and would also lead to you know, we're already seeing all these forest fires. I mean, our oxygen comes from the forest, 20%, 60% comes from the um, uh, plankton in the oceans, and their life cycles are getting affected by uh, the warming and the CO2 and so on. So I, I think we're, you know, we're actually already 
in a race against time, not just to. I, I guess what I what I was leading towards is that we are there, but there's yeah. this. It's almost like a choice between is there going to is it do we necessitate a top down control kind of approach, in the absence of us being able to actually get shit together and do this regional and this, like you know there, there's people who are saying governments are saying well we have to be responsible for people and this is the only way in which we're going to be able to ensure people's you know safety or you know I mean. That's sort of the direction that it seems to be leaning, right? And yeah, I mean, well, I mean, if, if you have a, a lot of disaster happening simultaneously, the capacity of, of a top-down centralized government uh, to respond to all, all the things is, is going to disappear, and and it will by nature have to be more self-organizing, and then the government may turn out to be kind of like an impediment in certain respects as its cumbersome bureaucracies try to like deal with the speed of change, you know? Right. Mm -hmm. Well, this, yeah, so I, I guess what's coming to me, and I know we're just about close now, is, you know, some I'm sense not of... not in a rush, you know, it's just time. Okay, okay, great. <laughs> just the possibilities of, you know, again, maybe it's a little bit like that four futures thing, but maybe I see like a different uh, map to it, but really a sense of the possibility of engaging now with the systems that are, right, the, the a lot of the top-down mechanisms that have, have the capacity to you know, influence behavior on mass. You know, I'm thinking of the Catholic Church, you know, the Pope passing certain things or bringing a sort of ecological awareness or consciousness to a lot of, you know, Catholics has a capacity yeah, to really yeah. activate a lot of people. So it's not like fully dismissing those options, right, of course, that they that they do have impact. And at the same time, seeing that they are largely hijacked still by certain technocratic system that, you know, is ever more wanting to exert control and uh, under the name of security and, and safety. And then this absence of a real necessity for a lot of people to actually engage meaningfully with the moment, right. uh, you know, sort of still waiting on that ultimate catastrophe to therefore say, oh, wait a second, you know, now it's time to get really involved. So I feel like, you know, it's almost like this curse of being able to see these scenarios sort of hovering and yet having no personal specific specific ability to say okay wait, wait but i want to do that one because you can't bring i don't know if this is the uh i don't know if it's cassandra complex or whatever like the, yeah i was just exactly. thinking cassandra yeah yeah I that's like a cassandra for 20 years yeah i mean uh you, you did what you've been saying it yeah well that's yeah. <laughs> that's very accurate i mean and what does it feel like i mean now to be maybe in some ways validated that you know some of the predictions have have come i mean and at the same time seeing i mean what's most surprising I think about what's what's happened, you know, since you've been sort of sounding the alarm for some time. Oh, uh, I don't. I don't really feel like you know, you know, validated. I mean, I mean, if anything, I feel um, sad because I, I feel you know what we were trying to architect with the Evolver Network was really you know the the best idea and the right thing, and um, and it was like a, you know something I go back to as a study because you know there were like um, uh, all all these things. It was it was almost like you know. Um, Tall poppy syndrome in a way. Like I, I felt like, you know, because I'd, I'd helped maybe lift up like somebody like you know Charles in a way. Like I'd published a lot of his early work and I edited Sacred Economics and so on. And then you know, not to call him out individually, but you know, one point I was like, look, as you because I he also did a whole sponsored tour. We went to all of our groups and later on, as he was getting bigger, I was like, could you help, you know, grow this movement? And he was like, no, no. And it was like the sense that it was like my thing, but I didn't even have my name on it or you know have a website of my own or whatever. I felt that in the progressive community, um, people are still very shielded and, and, and they want to kind of defend their own terrain. And, um, you know, and once again, strangely enough, the right wing, you know, seems to manage to work together in a symbiotic way. 
whereas people in the progressive community pick each other to pieces. And then I feel bad because I actually recently wrote a piece critiquing some of Charles's ideas that apparently hurt his feelings that I haven't, you know, really gotten into the way to like, you know, reach out to him and so on. But it's like, you know, we're like sensitive flowers who create these kind of structures around ourselves. And, you know, we, we need to go through this ego catastrophe to, to actually start working together mm. um, somehow. So, and I'm guilty of that also. I'm not I'm pointing, you know, if I'm pointing four, well, one finger ahead, it's four fingers back. So, so there's a big issue in the, in this sort of progressive, you know, creative left-wingish communities where we don't know how to support each other symbiotically mm. to advance the agenda that, that should be advanced. And so mm. we, and therefore we just watch miserably as things get worse and worse. Um, you know, so I'm, I'm trying to rectify that in myself, but, but it's, it's, it's actually kind of hard going, um, you know, like I mean, Marianne Williamson, you know, I was semi friends with, but did, did I go out of my way to support, her presidential campaign. No, I had all these criticisms about her, like narcissism and, you know, kind of parts of her spirituality that I found a little bogus and so on, you know, mm -hmm. so I, I, it's, it's, you know, where, you know, so, so that's like, I don't, you know, that's just very honest. Like, you know, I, I feel unless those of us who are part of this like progressive, you know, thing, figure out how we symbiotically support each other, we're going to go, we're going nowhere, which is where we, we've, we've gone up to this point. Mm -hmm. Ian, I know you felt that way somewhat with Kelly Brogan and your choice to bring her on and, and how you felt that same impulse of what um, uh, Daniel's speaking about, right, towards you and sort of your efforts. And you started to question, like, wait a minute, is this like my community or why are they not seeing like my sort of intention here? I don't know if you want to speak to that at all. Well, I mean, <laughs> put you on, I'll put you out there, but yeah, I mean, I mean, that could be a much longer thing to unpack, I think, too. But uh, I mean, I guess for me, the intention of trying to bring together a kind of coherence that for me seems very absent from from, you know, the in this case around, you know, the pandemic, and the vaccines. But because I do see that coherence as a fundamental step towards any kind of real collective efforts, right, towards anything. Yeah. And so to kind of outright dismiss certain perspectives um, and largely seem to be by those who hadn't really explored them at all uh, or had their own prejudices up front uh, seemed to me again, like a deep shadow of that whole, that whole scene, like the inability to even want to be in coherence, um, which again, I think comes from some sense of that, uh, like a seeking of safety uh, as it's provided for by the, you know, by the, the government would say to say that this is the one way we get safety. So anything outside of the bounds, right. Triggers this, this deep uncertainty. So again, I don't know if that's at play too. And, and all, well, also as Tristan Harris and, and Schmachtenberger did a good job of expressing on this Joe Rogan podcast. I mean, um, this technologies that we've all been enmeshed in and has reshaped our subjectivities or reproduced our subjectivities in new ways are inherently polarizing uh, mm -hmm. and uh, othering, you know? Yeah. So it's, we're very quick, like, oh, you know, somebody says something bad about somebody, uh, and that's it. We're like, okay, that person is is canceled. They're out. You know, um, I don't have to think about them anymore. I'm never going to watch anything they say or think about them. I'll, I'll I'll block them if they come into my field. You know, I mean, um, that's uh, that that that's another part of this whole circumstance. And we we have to somehow yeah. reel yeah. back from that. You know, well, we don't about, have to. But. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thanks for that. I mean, I feel like uh, you know, I I I'm going to wind it now back to the pandemic and particularly, but also, I think this could be a curiosity I have for you, Daniel, as well, is to uh, ask you, you know, I do see sometimes this conflation with uh, what's going on with the vaccines and the mandates and maybe like troubling understandings about, you know, what may be pushing the agenda. Uh, and at the same time, um, the climate change or climate crisis and a sense of, 
um, that that can almost get f folded into, again, a same deep suspicion of, of authority of the science community. And to me, I find that concerning as well. And I think you even said that in one of your recent posts yeah. saying that, yeah, that often that, I guess the danger of, of going too far in one area um, uh, or the conflating with another area and saying, yeah, like that climate change actually isn't happening and it's all part of this same agenda. And, and I, for one, have had trouble trying to separate those two. And I wonder what you might say to those people as well who are, you know, again, maybe concerned or troubled by what they see with the vaccines. And like you said, I mean, they, they can make their own choice, but um, are maybe also too quick to fold in what you've researched heavily feels like in the climate movement and, yeah. and you know unfolding that is deeply concerning to you which again how do you sort those those things and what might you say to those people to invite them into you know a way of of yeah maybe looking more closely um yeah it seems like because uh, i mean I, I reviewed this book pseudo pandemic um and also talked about james corbett and the corbett report which is you know kind of insane and amazing and like, you know, like, like a paranoid festival in a way, but, you know, um, you know, and, and he's, you know, totally, you know, kind of supports this idea that the vaccines, you know, maybe even contain like experimental elements, like, you know, which, I, you know, but I don't know if we do that, but yeah, it's a, it's a libertarian uh, psychology in a way. Uh, and um, I think that sort of libertarian psychology has become very pervasive uh, in society and it, and it leads to like a total, skepticism of authority and somehow this um, re religious belief in like, you know, the market or, you know, so, some something is kind of elevated, you know, the government is denigrated, anything that authorities, structures say, establishments say is denigrated, but somehow, you know, the capacity of like the free market or people to interact uh, in some other ways is, is elevated. So I, I don't, you know, I mean, um, um, it's a tough one. Um, and then the link to climate change in terms of the capacity to actually yeah. say, yeah, how does one differentiate? It might even say, for example, like, like, okay, look, yeah, the way that the state governments are colluding to, I don't know, respond and to double down on, um, you know, carbon credits or whatever it is that can still, you know, involve a lot of shady, you know, uh, under, under libertarians are never going to, as, as you know, as we say, there there would be some, you know, if we were going to address the climate emergency, um, you know, that it's going to require, you know there would have to be a, a fundamental agreement on the part of humanity that we're not going to, I mean, like, you know, I'm up for it. Like, okay. Like I can't travel anymore. Once a year I can travel. I can only eat like, you know, you know, veggies and rice and beans, but my daughter is going to have a much better chance of, of living to her eighties and having a decent life. You know, so let's say 10, 20 years, we all have to take, you know, a step back and, and not consume. I'm, I'm, I'm all for that, you know? Um, so I guess for you, then you're saying that your research into the climate emergency, as you said, has is legitimate, like as in you're not wondering whether or not it's happening. Like, oh, yeah, yeah. There's no doubt yeah. about that. I mean, I mean, you know, I mean, I, to me, it's um, uh, the evidence is so overwhelming. I mean, we're all, you know, even experiencing it. I mean, um, directly, you know, my, my mother could walk across, you know, the skate on the Hudson when she was a kid. You know, now, you know, not even Central Park ponds freeze over in the winter. I mean, it's. Mm happening, you know, so fast. So yeah, it's, uh, feels like a kind of willful, um, kind of, uh, uh, kind of avoidance of, of, you know, evidence, but you know, this is all, I mean, um, yeah, so I don't know. I mean, did you read that Ken Wilber book, Trump and, and the post-truth world? 
I did. Yeah, that whole thing about um, or a a perspectivalism or something like that. That's yeah, how we, how we kind of you know the the I can't remember the names of the bandwidths, but like it was like the orange or the green or the green meme I think in the '60s, yeah. which was all about like civil liberty, but also nobody has a privileged position, uh, and um, you know, and that somebody like Trump kind of hijacked that. So now you have like total relativism where there's you know there's nothing you know there's just fake news. Nothing is more true than anything else. Um, yeah, he, he kind of proposes there's a way past that, uh, that, that somehow the next um, kind of like uh, consciousness bandwidth or whatever, we somehow are able to kind of reassemble, um, you know, some kind of relationship to truth. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's clearly what we need to do right now. You know. <laughs> well, maybe last thing and then I'll say, I'll give it over to you because you did finish that. I think that essay or more your recent essays, you propose, um, I think it's called idealism, right? As a, as a alternate future that sort of rescues the moment from, I think, like materialism. Um, and it, that sort of unifies uh, sort of science, religion and mysticism. And I mean, I, I know that's a big topic to open up, but I mean, I'd love to just hear you speak a little bit about why that as a as an ism has has caught you now in sort of these recent times. It seems. Sure. Well, that as an ism caught me all the way back in like 2006 when I wrote, when I wrote 2012, The Return of Quetzalcoatl. I mean, R- Rudolf Steiner um was a uh, yeah we just got, I'll, I'll try to finish up uh, pretty soon but, uh, uh you know saw himself as a as a monist or an idealist so the idea is that actually you know the materialist worldview is that you know there's an objective physical reality uh and um, the idealist view is that actually consciousness is the underlying you know foundation and there's a you know we're all aspects or projections of this consciousness which is exploring you know, its potentials, its capacities, you know, through us uh, as kind of disassociated alters. Uh, and um, that, you know, and, and Bernardo Castrop, who's my favorite new thinker, uh, talks about how this actually, when we really grapple with this, and, you know, there's a great book you wrote called The Idea of the World, uh, it, it, it helps us to re, re-allow, and I just wrote an essay about this today, for the her- hermeneutics, like a hermeneutics of everything that actually, you know, as indigenous cultures and children understand, the world actually does present itself as as, as a uh, coherent network of like signs and symbols and communications. And, you know, we know this intrinsically, like we, you know, but, you know, a bird, you know, may represent the kind of thought or an insect that appears, you know, may represent, you know, your brother having a baby or something, you know, who the, you know, but, but, that, but I, and, and all these indigenous cultures were totally aware of being immersed in their local realities in this in this network of correspondences and so on and so we've been yeah taken over by this you know colonized let's say by this technological and framing this materialist understanding and uh, we've lost our sense that, the, that you know the cosmos itself has a meaning and purpose that we're each individually an expression of so you know and, and what castrop does masterfully is make a fully logical case for analytic idealism, you know, taking in every re- possible refutation. And, and, you know, to me, it's, you know, it, it totally accords with my own understanding and knowledge. And yeah, so, so you know, that is uh, transformative. And, you know, although that's, it's a very, you know, it's a bit intellectual right now. Well, I'm sure material, materialism was one, but you have to convince everybody away from pantheism and Christianity to get them to be materialists. Now we have to take everyone away from materialists and, and physicalists to realize that actually consciousness is this foundation. And that's what quantum physics is showing us. And therefore, you know, we live in a meaning infused cosmos. Uh, where we, we're actually cosmic protagonists in this huge drama. And what a more wonderful way that is to be and how that changes everything about, about what we can think about, even what 
projects humanity could engage in because then the idea of a singularity or you know neural implant with technology is a horrible you know misconstruing whereas we should actually be thinking about you know local local knowledge hermeneutics like how you know and then we look at these cultures like the shipibo or the kogi you know or the hopi how their local knowledge systems actually lead to you know very very subtle you know psychic effects that are totally different than what are experienced elsewhere you know that's you know that sort of multiplicity of possibility is a much more beautiful direction you know for the future mm. Mm. well daniel i think guess we'll leave it there so again really appreciate your time uh wondering about this Where thanks guys today? thanks for yeah yeah i'm running away with me here yeah <laughs> yeah okay yeah. we continued ciao, ciao.